Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Welcome back to Republicans Defeating Trump. I'm your host, Ron Steslow. In this episode, I spoke with Lincoln Project co-founders and veteran political strategists Steve Schmidt and Reed Galen. We talked about how the toxic culture of reality shows led to the Trump presidency. We look back at America's rise to become a global superpower, how Donald Trump has damaged America's global reputation, and why Joe Biden can help us rebuild it. Then we talk about Trump's assault on truth and how important civic education will be for rebuilding America after the end of the reality show presidency. There is a phrase, Steve, that you've used quite a bit to describe Donald Trump losing in November, which is, we'll be looking at the end of the reality show presidency. I want to dig into that a little bit because I think there's always been a performative aspect to the job of the president. And maybe that performance has to do with the weight of responsibility that each president feels in doing their duty, that that is different than you or bigger than you as the person. And that seems to be a responsibility that Donald Trump has never felt. And it doesn't seem to be a job or a role that he was applying for in 2016. So from the moment he came down the escalator, he wasn't auditioning for that role. And so what the presidency has become is different from the model that we had before. And maybe that's what his appeal was. Maybe that's what people liked about him. Before we talk about the end of the reality show presidency, what do you mean by the reality show? At the end of Reagan's presidency, he did a farewell interview with David Brinkley, the legendary newsman from ABC. And Brinkley asked Reagan, and he says, what's the secret, Mr. President? What's the secret to your, your success? And, and Reagan says to Brinkley, he goes, well, he goes, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say. And, and Brinkley says, no, Mr. President, it's, it's, it's at the end. Tell us. Reagan commented that his critics had pointed out that he was an actor before he went into politics. And, and Reagan wondered, well, you know, how could you possibly have done this job if acting wasn't your previous profession? But that was somebody who left office with a with a 60 percent approval level and did his duty and honored the office that he served in. And what I mean by the reality show era of, of American politics is just the rank stupidity of it all. You know, reality shows, by definition, it's all bullshit. It's all fake. And Trump is the perfect figure to emerge from this seedy, toxic culture of reality show where we look at these people mostly like you would look at the freak in the circus tent, you know, in an age in an age gone by. And it's just from the Jersey Shore on forward. Right. It's just if you look at this, it just it just the rot of it all. Right. And the culture. And so up emerges Donald Trump, right? And I look at this from the perspective of 50 years from now, 60 years from now, when we're looking at the end of the American era. And we're at the end of the American era, I believe, that lasted for 75 years from the end of World War II, from Franklin Roosevelt to Barack Obama. When we look at our decline, and we look at this very difficult chapter in American history, we, we look at it from 50 years from now, like with a, with a grandkid 
you know, sitting on our knee. I'll be 99. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm getting old. Shit. You know, you were to say that in a time of relative peace and prosperity, America elected a New York City hustler and con man who was the star of a reality show where he branded himself as a successful businessman who had defrauded and looted everything he was ever part of, who was corrupt as hell, completely inept and incompetent. And he presided over one of the greatest debacles in the history of the of the country. Now, this is someone who said, I'm going to make America great again. He shattered the economy with the ineptitude of his response to the coronavirus. We have 100 plus thousand dead Americans with, with more coming. And we put somebody with no aptitude, no skill, who's literally melting down in front of the country every day, psychologically, his intellectual deficiencies. He's just not right at every conceivable level. And so we forgot, I suppose, that life and death decisions play out in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk, that this is a consequential office. And so Trump famously posed the question, what do you have to lose? As we all sit in our houses and ponder the pandemic, we all had a lot to lose, as it turns out. And Donald Trump typifies the consequences of this era of frivolity and stupidity and, and silliness that accumulated upon itself until the moment of this guy's election. Reality shows are popular for a reason. They're money makers for the networks. They're money makers for Bravo for a reason. People like to watch them. There's something that attracted the American people to Donald Trump's candidacy, for better or for worse. It's been toxic to the office of the presidency, to the job, to the duties. But is there any merit to the style that- no. The style is disgraceful. His comportment is despicable. He is the president of the United States of America. It's, it's shameful. The reality show piece, Ron, that you brought up, remember that the whole point is that it's all contrived, right? Right. I don't know whether or not these people, when you see these shows, ever talk to one another outside of you know whatever contract and filming they do, right? Yeah. Sure. So all of the things they do are made up. And you would also not ever ask any of these people to be leader of the free world, right? And there's also an attribution of celebrity and with that celebrity, some, you know, credibility that none of them have earned. And Donald Trump is no different in that regard. He is no better today than he was on The Apprentice, which is someone for all of this, it is performative, right? Now, Ronald Reagan understood that the performative aspect of the presidency was enormously important because you serve as the em literal embodiment of the United States of America. But that didn't mean that when he sat behind the desk in the Oval Office, he didn't understand the job he needed to do and was always willing to do it. You know, it's one thing to say it was easier to be an actor and to do this job. But if you're sitting next to Mikhail Gorbachev and you're discussing Star Wars and nuclear disarmament, like at some point, you have to actually know what it is you're talking about or what it is you want to get done. And Trump brings none of that to the table. And we're learning that lesson now. Well, and here's the point is that for up until mid-March, when we started to realize how bad the COVID-19 piece was going to be, you know, we could probably live within the reality sphere bubble as Americans because Donald Trump is unfit and had done many things to, to upset too many people in the country. But frankly, you know, if the economy was roaring and unemployment was low, there wasn't a lot he could hopefully do to mess it up on his own. 
The problem was is that when reality, which is a crisis in a presidency, interceded, he was and is unable to deal with it because he is a two-dimensional individual. Steve, when you when you say the American era is coming to an end or this is the end of it, what does that mean? It means that in 1938, I, I think, and Reed might correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think the United States was the world's 38th military power. We were a dominant economic power, and we were the richest country on earth, but we were not an international force in terms of driving the trajectory of the world. And what changed that was World War II. And when World War II ended, the United States was the preeminent power in the world. And it was for 75 years, despite all its flaws and mistakes, it was in all of the history of civilization. It's been the most benign hegemon that's ever been. So the United States has fed more people, cured more people, liberated more people than all of the other countries of the world put together since the beginning of time. When the war was Still in its early years, before the United States joined, Franklin Roosevelt met with Winston Churchill on the North Atlantic Ocean, and they signed something there called the Atlantic Charter. The Atlantic Charter visualized what a world free from Nazi tyranny, what it would look like. And it envisioned a post-colonial era, independence, the spread of democracy and freedom. And so when the war ended, The United States rebuilt Europe and rebuilt Japan and established a set of rules in an international order that existed at a time where more people were uplifted out of abject poverty by the billions, rapid expansion of democracy around the world. And so the systems of our trade, of international law, all of these exist because of the U.S.-led liberal global order, NATO a part of it, the most successful military alliance in human history. And all around the world, people would look at the United States with admiration and aspiration to be like America. Tell me, who is it across the world that looks today at the United States and says, we want to be like them? What we see is Trump's decisions beginning at the president, beginning of his presidency with TPP, the withdrawal and really ceding of the Pacific to the Chinese, who are developing a trillion dollar infrastructure project connecting the Pacific. And so nature pours a vacuum. And Donald Trump has created an enormous vacuum that other countries will step into. And so when we look at this moment in time, The Europeans, our military alliances know that the United States isn't a reliable partner. We look like we're governed worse than a banana republic. And we are at a moment of profound and abject weakness. And so whatever the world will be, what comes next, the era that was continuous for 75 years from a point of view about liberty and freedom and the United States role in the world. We talk about the differences between Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan, but on the big things, right, there was more agreement than disagreement. And there was a thread of connection from Truman to Obama of Republican and Democratic presidents 
who operated within a norm and operated at the head of that U.S.-led liberal global order. That's why the president is called the leader of the free world. And so Donald Trump has abdicated that responsibility completely. And so that era is over. And American leadership in the world will not be so easily restored. We are a big, militarily powerful, economically powerful country, but there's always been a moral dimension to American leadership. And Donald Trump has obliterated it. Let's say Joe Biden wins November 3rd. What does it take to begin to repair the damage that Donald Trump has inflicted on America on the world stage? It's going to take somebody, and that's why everyone should be happy that Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee. It's going to have to be someone who has the respect of world leaders, who understands America's role in the world, and who has credibility. It's going to be a long, a long project. This period of history has delighted our adversaries, but horrified and frightened our, our friends. And I think that there's so many people across the world that look at the United States and what's happening right now through a mixture of sadness and pity. And it's just heartbreaking. But it's going to take a long time. What Biden, I think, can do when he takes office as both a longtime United States senator who understands the legislative process and as a vice president for eight years who understood a lot about the foreign policy piece of this stuff, he brings a good mix of experience into this. But I think he, you know, he also has the opportunity and probably the responsibility to understand that from a historical perspective, whatever era we're moving into or out of or you know in the in the transition of given where we are the state of this country with a hunt more than 100,000 dead and growing as Steve said and tens of millions out of work we're in a time when the country needs a fundamentally new direction at a right angle probably from where we are today there is no going back 180 degrees from Donald Trump today is it doesn't matter right it's just it's oblivion now you and I have talked quite a bit about how there is no going backward. Maybe the first stop to realizing that is a hope for some return to normalcy or whatever we call normalcy. And then you realize there is, there is no going backward. We're not going to go back to what the presidency used to be or what America used to be before Donald Trump or the way we felt about politics. We're, we can only go forward. So what does that mean now that we have had this model of a president? This, this reality show clown, what do we do next? And then I want to talk about what happens to the GOP after this, because they have inherited Trumpism. And there's an aspect of the same type of everything is a performance, right? Everything is about owning the libs. There's really nothing underneath the new crop of candidates that are, that are coming up in the party. What are the lessons that are being learned by the various institutions in republicanism? Well, I mean, I, I would say as far as the presidency is concerned, a Joe Biden presidency will be different than every other because they're all unique. But I think it would represent some return to some classical pieces of the presidency, right? First and foremost, fitness for the office. Secondly, the Twitter handle will go back to the hands of a staff member who is, you know, got 16 people telling them, yes, it's okay to write this and send it out to the world regular press briefings. I think I'm hoping more honesty, which it would be difficult to get less honesty than we have today, uh, some more clarity, some more transparency. And then again, just some some vision of what it what it means to be the president and what it means to to run this country. And I think back to the 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 reality piece of this, you know, if you go back and you read 
Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, you know, he said every day for him is a new fight, right? There's no yesterday. There's no tomorrow. It's only what it is he's doing today. That is fine when you're a carnival barker sitting at the top of Trump Tower pretending to be some, you know, fake news reporter when you call the New York Post. It's an entirely different thing when you're responsible for the lives of 320 million Americans. But none of this should be a surprise to any of us. So what comes next is something that, again, it will be different. That's fine. The world is fundamentally changing beneath our feet. I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, we've had all of these things happen. We've had 9-11. We've had Katrina. We've had the economic collapse. We've now had COVID. I mean, if you think about that, that's all a lot. And they've all been traumatic in their own ways. But, you know, my grandparents were born in houses without electricity and running water, right? They lived through the Depression. They lived through World War II. We sometimes forget because it's so easy to collapse within our own little worlds that like these things happen to every generation a lot. And then I think a lot more. The difference is now is that we are hemmed in by a leader who is incapable and unwilling to do the things he needs to do to help guide us out of this, if that makes sense. It does. But I'm thinking about how politicians engage in public going forward because the way information moves and the and the accessibility of all the digital channels make people expect to see some version of authenticity, some version of a reality show in their politicians now. Donald Trump has now set that expectation. And there are a whole lot of politicians who are now really good at this. I mean, look at the live streams that AOC does from the House floor, from her office, or there's more of this style of politics for consumption available than there ever was before Donald Trump. So what does that do? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does it begin to erode our faith in government or does it connect us to the people who are supposed to be serving us? Well, look, I think that every charismatic leader, you know, if you go back to FDR and and fireside chats has understood the availability of the newest medium to communicate with the greatest number of people. I think the difference between an FDR or a, a Dwight Eisenhower, who for the first time in 1952 used television advertising to communicate to a wide swath of voters for the first time, is that they all had an idea of what it ultimately was they needed to do or what the country needed. And what the country needed and what they wanted to do fell somewhere, even if its opponents said otherwise, you know, within the mainstream of what was necessary for the day. And so, you know, Trump says nothing of importance except to, you know, further divide. And he's not going to do anything, you know, except to do things that will further harden his base. And AOC will do things. But again, the things that she talks about might be aspirational to her and to her people, but that doesn't mean they're actually ever going to happen, right? So it is it is more performative. I think, you know, government is hard. It's not glamorous. Trump and some of the stuff that he talks about. Though. For sure. Absolutely. But governing is hard. I mean, most of the most of the time, the day in, day out things of, you know, passing bills and and figuring out which money's supposed to go where and what bridge needs to be repaired, like none of that is glamorous. But, you know, that's why you have someone like a president who serves as the person to set that vision in that direction. And you hopefully have competent members of the staff and then and then willing participants and willing partners in in Congress who are going to help you do those things. And so I think that ultimately, maybe the, the bottom line, Ron, is that results will again begin to matter. Steve? I was just listening to Reed and I, I was thinking about when you talk about the kind of the normalcy in the office, right? And just what Biden would would restore and bring back. I mean, 
Trump refuses to read his intelligence briefing, just won't consume it, right? There's, there's stories in the papers about what the analysts have to go through to prep to try to present information to him, right? So you have, you have someone who has the toughest decision-making job in the world who has no ability to consume information, just a steadfast unwillingness to learn, just revels in his ignorance, can't tell him anything. And so whether it's this morning, you know, whether it's him tweeting out George Wallace quotes, talking about shooting looters, claiming federal powers that he doesn't have, he's just completely unhinged, just a nut job. What's different now is when the benefits start to run out, and they will, 40 million people out of work, the total disconnect between the Wall Street and the Main Street economy, the consequence phase of this will will hopefully usher in an era where people understand cannot have fools in positions of power because there could be deadly, deadly consequences to it. What happens if there's a V-shaped recovery? What happens if it's not 30% unemployment, but it's 12 and that looks a whole lot better than it did before, right before the election? There's not going to be 12% unemployment before the election, and there's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. It's a fantasy. We will not be through this until there is a vaccine. And any understanding of the history of vaccines is that they don't appear within four months or five months. And so the country is not prepared, and we'll see and are seeing in some states cases are rising. We'll see what happens in the fall. But the country is in for hard years. And Ron, I think that that brings us back to the reality piece of this, which is call it the advent of the iPhone or the Android or social media and the ability of folks to consume only the news they want from only the people they want to get it from is that we have been able to live, you know, with the exception of getting up and going to work and eating and everything else, we've been able to live pretty much in the world of our own making for an extended period of time. And there have been ups and downs and all of that, as there are for every every individual person. But this is the first time in a long time where the coronavirus doesn't care what any of us think about anything. Yeah. Right? It doesn't care yeah. where you get your news from. It doesn't care what your phone says. It doesn't care what your Instagram feed says, right? It is real. It is analog, right? And in some ways, this is not only you know a stark reminder of you know sometimes the fragility of life, and the fragility of all these things, right? We're we're all four, you know, we're all four disasters away from from living in a refrigerator box someplace. Yeah. But that there are times when you have to like look up from the blue screen and see what's going on around you. And I think we were all lulled into a complacency that if it didn't happen on my Twitter feed, it didn't really happen. Well, that's not real life. Well, one of the things I worry about in all of the norms, democratic norms that have been broken or eroded. One of the most dangerous is the president's ability to consistently lie over and over and over again, without not only without consequence, but without conscience. And so when we talk about, you know, if it doesn't happen in my Twitter feed, then it didn't really happen, or our ability to live in our own filter bubbles. When he claims powers that he doesn't have, for example, people don't know that he doesn't have the ability to do those things. They don't know that. They take him at his word, even well-meaning people. What do we do with that? And what would you say to voters who as citizens have put their faith in this man, whether they voted for him or not, they said he's now the president of the United States. And they take him at his word when he says things that are blatantly untrue. What do we do with the assault on truth itself going forward? 
It's a serious problem, that's for sure. And I think it may be the greatest threat to the country that we've ever faced. And I, I include fascism and communism. And we defeated those insidious and evil threats because they were based and premised and foundationally lies. Fascism and it was a lie. And the inherent truth of our system that all men are created equal, the idea of human dignity, human freedom, these are inalienable truths. And you can't have a functioning democracy if you can't agree on objective truth. And so in an era where the lie travels at light speed and the president's propaganda networks repeat it and drive it and recirculate it, it's a profound threat to liberty. And, and look, you know, we don't have a king in this country. We have a president. And at the end of the day, I've always think about Benjamin Franklin and whether the story is apocryphal or not. Coming out of the Constitutional Convention, the woman says, you know, Mr. Franklin, what, what have you done? And, and, you know, what have you given us? And, and he said, a republic, if you can keep it. Well, keeping the republic means maintaining at least a core of an informed citizenry that has some understanding how the country functions. I mean, we have a civics emergency in this country. The American system of governance is a work of genius. It's one of the great acts of genius in the history of the world. The oldest enduring constitutional republic, the amount of sacrifice and, and, and blood and treasure and beggars the imagination to, to keep it and to see it put into decline and at risk by Donald Trump. Yeah. I usually don't appreciate monocausal explanations for, for anything complex because they're usually not helpful. But civics education seems to be, to me, one of the most crucial pillars of maintaining a healthy democratic society. And as we know that that's been eroded, Reed, you and I were fortunate enough a couple of years ago to, to meet Condoleezza Rice in, in Colorado. And I remember one thing that she said that stuck out, which was the single biggest threat to the United States national security is education. Well, yeah. I mean, for, first, what happened to civic education? I took it in seventh grade. Now, of course, I'm the exact wrong example because I grew up with the damn thing. So, like, I, I, you know, I'm a nerd that way, but I'm not sure what happened to it. I will say that I think about, and we should not underestimate the efficiency and the effectiveness of the Trump propaganda machine between himself, Fox, OANN. Breitbart, Rush, Facebook, all of this stuff. It is an incredibly efficient machine. So don't underestimate it. But I think, you know, if you think back to, I think was it 68 or 72 when Nixon talked about the silent majority, and I think we still have a silent majority. I think the issue now is that they're silent and unengaged. And so we have very loud minorities who scare the hell out of everybody or depress everybody so much that they just they just hide inside their houses and hope it all goes away. And so, you know, if you ask the question, well, how are we going to get through this without an act of the people, none of the the healing or the reconstruction, I should say, I think it's a reconstruction effort will be possible because they must and we must as a group, as a people start to take responsibility for our things. We must now there's a guy, a couple of guys who wrote a book talking about the Leviathan, like we must begin to shackle the Leviathan again. Right. It, it must start to answer to the things that we expect and demand from our leaders 
not simply just being pushed upon us because between big companies and politics, they've all figured out how to game the system. There's still a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them. And only if and until we are ready to take that responsibility on an individual basis, you know, will we be able to start to climb out of this. Pew Research does a study, I think it's every single year, and they've done it for quite a long time. And they ask a single question, which is, do you believe it is essential to live in a democracy? And what you see over a very long period of time is that the older you are or the earlier you were born, the more likely you are to say yes. And we're now at a point in their longitudinal study where the millennials and younger answer that question at a rate of lower than 50%, which to me is terrifying. Terrifying. And it speaks to our civics education gap. But what do you say to an entire generation or two of Americans who don't believe it is essential to live in a democracy? Even a small percentage of them would be frightening, but but in such a large number, how do you even begin to think about illuminating for them just how genius the Constitution is? just how brilliant the American system of government is, Steve. It is terrifying. And, you know, the roots of it come from success. It's the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism ended the debate about which system was better, ours or theirs. And so we haven't had that debate at all since 1989. There's no point in comparison. And we're far enough removed from history that I think the the thing that they're answering, the question that they're really answering is what they associate with democracy is the status quo of government. And they see inefficiency and idiocy and ineptitude, and they see corruption, and they don't see that it's working for them. And, you know, so that's why you get that answer. But the fragility of all of these institutions, I think, is a lot greater than than all of us thought you know, from a couple of years ago, you know, but this is a great project, you know, for some billionaire out there to take upon and begin a mass public education through a foundation or something exercise that that celebrates the American system of government. I mean, even if you go back to Saturday morning cartoons, you know, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill, right? People are turned off by politics. You go to a party convention, it's an assemblage of weirdos and cranks and nutjobs and you know, no one wants anything to do with it. And, you know, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge problem because, you know, it's these processes, which, you know, are, are necessary to pick our leaders. And, you know, we got to pick good leaders now in a time of crisis, it's really essential. You know, this goes, I think, along with Steve's point about the, you know, the end of the cold war is that, you know, with the exception of about 1% of our population who has done probably 90% of the actual fighting in combat over the last 20 years, we as a people, as a collective, uh, have not had to fight for this in a long, long time, in a long, long time. And so I consider myself someone who has inherited this stuff, but obviously, you know, my parents' generation, you know, were Vietnam and my grandparents' generations were, you know, the depression, World War II, in some cases, Korea as well. You know, we're the people who 
put the shovels in the ground and started to build this country. And so, you know, we're long in the tooth in many ways. And, you know, we're we're a late stage, I'm afraid, late stage democratic republic that, you know, needs a needs a little fountain of youth. And that's a literal and a figurative statement. And so I think the millennials that you talk about who are now, I think, Ron, you're probably in your 30s. I think you're a millennial. I'm Generation X. I think Steve's mm-hmm. Generation X. They have to start asking themselves. You all have to start asking yourselves. This all came to you. Right. This yes. was handed to you. It's a gift. And, you know, sometimes if you're given a gift of great value without sacrifice, uh, you tend to take it for granted. And I think that's probably the end of any great institution, be it a government or a company or a foundation or an organization. As soon as it just everyone makes assumptions that it'll just go on forever. That's when reality jumps up and smacks you in the face. So I agree with all of that. And yet civics education or the idea of it remains one of the most unsexy prospects that I can think of in politics. In Steve Shear point, it would take a billionaire willing to write a really big check with a 10-year plan to, to try and re-engage Americans and, and help them understand why it's important to understand how the system works and not to mention how brilliant it is in the first place. But barring that, does it take a brush up with another superpower with a different ideology, with a different worldview in order to shake Americans out of this complacency? We're going to have one. We're going we're gonna to have one with the Chinese. You know, when we look at that competition that exists, you know, the Chinese are a rising power and we are a declining power. The systems and the rules and the values, right? I, I want those values written in an American-led world, not a Chinese-led world. I think we have a superior value system, right? And and we shouldn't be afraid about about asserting it. And so when we look out ahead in the in the years to come, you know, we are still in the early days of a of a crisis of epic proportions. Epic proportions. Yeah, I think EPIC epic and EPOCH epic. I think in both of those things and and I think that I would say that the only difference I would have in my opinion from Steve is that in some cases, decline is a choice. You can sit and eat fried chicken three times a day and say, well, it's fine, but ultimately it's not going to be fine. Or you can say, I have to make a decision here, or we have to make a decision, which is, do we want to go that way or do we want to go this way? Now, the way we're on now, if we count Trump as the psychotic locomotive that's running this train off the tracks... That's one that leads to, I think, very, very bad things. The other one is unknown, but at least provides opportunity. And I think that we all need to understand that that's really what this is going to come down to is, you know, what is the kind of world we hope to rebuild America in, right? As we come through this, remember, think about this. I mean, when World War II started in 19, September of 1939, no one knew it was going to take six years to end, right? Some, oh, it'll be over in a month. When World War I started, in August of 1914, everybody thought it'd be two, three months. It'd be over, right? Four years, four years, six years, tens of millions of lives lost. In some cases, we had to defeat the first enemy in fascism in World War II, and then it took us 50 years to beat the second in communism. The other part, too, is that we must start collectively believing that America is both in reality a country worth fighting for, and maybe more importantly, an idea worth fighting for. And that doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything because we get we get bogged down in policy and what about this thing and that thing and this program and that program? No, it's so if we're 50 years from today, as Steve said, and I'm now 94, 
Like, what is it that we said in those intervening 50 years? You know, what direction did we take? You know, did we arc, you know, the bending of history? Did it arc toward justice, like Dr. King said? Or did it arc toward decline, you know, like Donald Trump said, because he doesn't care. He, do- I mean, that's the ultimate thing. He just doesn't care because he can't conceive of it. This reminds me of something I've heard over and over again, which is that people change when they know how and when they have to. And I fear that we don't have either of those things at a mass scale. I don't think there's anything that's going to force Americans to change, to re-engage at a mass level in civics, more so in 2020 than ever before. But I don't know that we're that we're quite there yet. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think, but also they have to know how, and I'm afraid that we're, we're missing both of those things. What do you think? I think that we're close. I think that we're on the precipice of something. I mean, Ron, you and I have spent the last several years in the democracy reform space. Yeah. You know, those of us that are fortunate enough to make this our business, I'd like to think that for me, it was more than just, you know, campaign and camp campaign in and campaign out every two years. And so I think there's, again, a responsibility to among those of us who understand the process to try and reform it, rebuild it, whatever the case might be. But ultimately, I think that there are people like what we've seen with the Lincoln Project, where we have, you know, nearly 200,000 people signed up for our website. And when we get on when we get on calls with those folks, it's about it's about we it's not about you. And so I think that that sort of solidarity is important. And I think those those pockets of solidarity exist um, and it's really a matter of f- figuring out who those people are, where they are, and and starting to you know find leaders. I think leaders do matter. Leaders absolutely matter. You know, I don't necessarily think it always means that you have to be on the ballot, although that would be good. But I think we have to start finding those individual civic leaders or community leaders from your neighborhood association to your city council to your county, in all these places, three thousand counties across this country, who can and should start to take a step up and say. You know, this is this is my world y'all are living in. I have some responsibility. I'm going to take some responsibility for it and and try and move it forward. But all this stuff is is tough, but it's all doable. The system as it's currently constructed is meant to, you know, keep the status quo in place and, you know, meant to keep competitors at bay. But I think that if you get enough folks pushing in the same direction, you know, the system will be overwhelmed. And as we've seen, as Steve said, some of these things are weaker than we thought they were. In those places like government, you don't want to see that. But if it's a if it's a hidebound political system, maybe we can take advantage of that. Steve, what would you say to a voter who's on the fence, genuinely struggling about the decision coming up in November, genuinely on the fence? They see the reality show and they don't like it. I'm not sure I'm the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> One of Hillary Clinton's problems in the last election was her longevity. The country had never, ever considered making someone the president who had been as famous for as long in the center stage of political life as she was, 26 years. The only you know, other example is, is Nixon, right? He was famous for, for 20 years. And what was true about that election was this. Whomever the election was about was the person who was losing the election. And the election was about Donald Trump for like 98% of the election until the Comey letter in the last week. And then it became about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump narrowly won. Like, that's what happened, right? It's, it's 100% what happened. Right now, should, should it have been that close? All that stuff, right? But, but he's, he's the president. So, so here we are. 
right? And it's it's been four years. Any anyone better off than they were four years ago? Who are those people? This is this is a disaster. I mean, this guy is up there. You have tens of thousands of dead people talking about his ratings, talking about injecting disinfectant. The tweets this morning, he's completely unhinged. He's completely unserious. Four more years of this? Four more years of this. One of the things that Reed said earlier, I have a very difficult time saying the country's in decline. It's a hard thing to say. We can reverse the decline. I don't think it's too late, but we're on that road. I mean, you, you sit back and, and watch the news today and just ponder it. The wheels are off the crazy bus. We have such a failure of leadership in this country, there's not a word for it. The level of corruption, the assault on our institutions, our values, country can't take this for four more years. And really, we go back to the core question. If, if you let one of the dumbest people in the country lead it, and you let them lead it again, well, there's going to be a big consequence for that. He is a he is a failed president like like we have never, ever had. Reed, anything you want to add? No, thanks for taking the time today, Ron and Steve. And I think that these are conversations that I think begin today, but but continue throughout this year and certainly, you know, well into the future. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.